Beautiful singing tonight, as always, and uh, we certainly appreciate those of you who joined in our song service tonight. You know, singing praises to God is a beautiful thing, and uh, mostly I like to sing a lot about heaven. It's very encouraging and uplifting when we can blend our voices and sing about a place that we all anticipate going to one day. Uh, you may have your favorite songs about heaven. Some of my favorite songs are When We All Get to Heaven or Heavenly Sunlight. I love the song, Heaven Will Surely Be Worth It All, Worth All the Sorrows That Here Befall. After this life, with all its strife, heaven will surely be worth it all. I suppose that we love to sing about heaven because heaven is where most people intend to go. In fact, most surveys taken among people today reveal that the vast majority of people really believe that heaven is in their future. It is somewhat sad, though, and unfortunate that Jesus prophesied that heaven is not in the future of most people. That's certainly not because of God. God loved the whole world, John 3 and verse 16. He sent his son Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loved us enough to die for us. God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And so it's not God's fault. It's not the Savior's fault. The reason that many do not have heaven in their future is because they obey not the gospel of God, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And so sadly, most people will never lay their eyes on the beauties of heaven. And yet there is a small group, the Bible says, that will lay hold on eternal life. And I want to ask the question tonight for these people, what is heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like one day to be able to walk through heaven's shining portal? You might think about the first few minutes in heaven, the first 30 minutes in heaven. What's it going to be like? What thoughts might cross your mind as you think about being in heaven for the first 30 minutes? Well, first of all tonight, I want to suggest that we will realize the magnitude of God's marvelous grace. You know, God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, the Apostle Paul realized the tremendous blessing of God's grace. Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Paul realized that he had been saved from the depths of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he had hope because of what Jesus did on the cross and his obedience to the gospel. Have you ever felt like that maybe you were undeserving of God's amazing grace? You may feel that way all the time. And when you do feel that way, when you feel like that 
You don't deserve God's grace. You are exactly right. You and I do not deserve God's gracious hand. I certainly don't in any way mean to demean our self-image in any way by making that statement, but really, I think the opposite is true when we realize what God has done for us. You know, there are some people who have the ability to, to see something of value in that which other people might discard. Often these entrepreneurs will get out early on a Saturday morning. They'll go out to the flea markets. They'll go out to the yard sales and they'll find treasures that other people want to discard. And there's actually people that make a living at going and buying and then selling what others might discard. I saw on a television show recently how an individual found this odd-looking medallion. It looked rather nice, but he bought it for $3, and he went to have it checked out, and it had something to do with the British military from generations gone by, and the actual value of this medallion was $150,000. That's not bad, is it? Something that somebody just discarded basically for $3, somebody found a genuine treasure. But you know, God is the master of redeeming that which ought to be discarded. And when it comes to you and me today, we deserve to be lost. I know sometimes it's hard for us to think along those lines because we live in a country where we're so blessed and we're warned in the Bible about thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But spiritually speaking, we deserve nothing but eternal condemnation. The Bible describes our situation as being without God, without hope in this world. But God reached down with his saving love and grace and mercy and he redeemed us, if you please, from our hopeless situation. He saw value in that which ought to be discarded. And now we see the real worth of it. God paid the price. He stepped in and did for us what We could not do for ourselves. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 2 and verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he hath made us together alive with Christ. For by grace are you saved. Romans 3 and verse 4 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You know, our attitude, I think, is very, very important. I think we need to get our value from how God sees us. God sees you and I as being valuable enough that he sent his son to die for us. And so our value does not come from us and what we do and what we accomplish. Our value comes from what God 
has done for us. Over in Luke chapter 18, we read about that parable of uh, the Pharisee and the publican, how two men went up to pray. We read about the arrogance and the pride and the haughtiness of that publican. God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like other men are. I'm thankful I'm not like that old publican standing over there. Oh, I do all these great things. God, I am worthy. And yet the Bible says that that publican, standing afar off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased and everyone that humbles himself shall be exalted. And so hopefully when we go through those pearly gates of our heavenly home, I imagine that sometime during those first few minutes, God's grace, we're going to realize, was truly, in fact, greater than all of our sins. Another thing that I think is going to transpire in the first few minutes of heaven is that we're going to be able to behold and look at the face of our Savior. You know, people have asked from time to time, you know, what what do you think Jesus looked like? There's been all kinds of pictures and artist renderings of what our Lord may have looked like. Maybe one of the most popular renderings is the fact that, you know, here's a man that looks very meek and he has long hair and blue eyes, but I have to say, I don't know what Jesus looked like. I know the Bible says in prophecy, he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. Nothing really pretty to look at. Like a, like a root out of a dry ground, You've seen those knotty roots come up out of the ground in the dry season. Isaiah said, you know, he's like a root out of a dry ground. Nothing really to look at. I don't know what Jesus looked like. But, you know, soon after we enter into heaven, we're going to do, do that which only a few select in the first century have ever done. We're going to be able to look upon the face of our Savior. We're going to be able to look upon the face of the one who gave himself for us. We're going to be able to look upon the bishop and the shepherd of our souls. The one who redeemed us. The one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You know, Matthew 5 and verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Whom having not seen you love, and whom though you see now, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You think about the wonderful blessing of being able to look upon the face of the Savior, the one who redeemed us with his blood. But then I think about something else that's just going to be 
fabulous to me to contemplate. I think about the reunion that's going to take place with all those who we've loved so much on this earth. You know, anytime there's death, I always think about David. I think about how David lost that son whom he loved. And after that son died, David went about his everyday business. He got dressed in his normal attire and he began to get back to a normalcy of life. Sure, he was grieved, but he began to get back to doing things as he always did. And somebody inquired about that. And in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 22, David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child might live? But now he is dead. So why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? It's a rhetorical question. He said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You know, there's so many people, dear people, that I one day want to reunite with in heaven. I have two sets of grandparents that I hope to see again one day soon. Some I have spent with more times than I have with others. A grandfather on my mom's side that I never had the privilege of meeting. I had a 12-year-old first cousin that passed from this life at age 12 with cancer. I was only four or five, so I really never knew him. I think about many that have left this earth that were dear friends, maybe those that have gone on because of cancer, or friends that I've known who have left this earth because of accidents, maybe an automobile accident of some kind. We want to reunite with these people one day. You know, we sing the verse of that song, <clears throat> many friends and dear loved ones will welcome me there in the door of that mansion someday. You know, I think about the folks that one day I want to reunite with and the various congregations that I have been associated with through the years. Those brethren that I have loved and have encouraged me and have befriended me and they're my Christian brothers and sisters in Christ and they've gone on before. I, I want to reminisce about days gone by maybe that we enjoyed spending together. You know, I can look out over this assembly here and I have <clears throat> a vivid picture in my mind of where all the individuals sat since I moved here, and now, for the most part, those seats are empty or they've been replaced with new people. I've done about 175 funerals here in the last 17 or so years, and there's a lot of people that have gone on. People that were strong in the Lord. People that were wonderful people in so many respects. People that are dearly missed. And yet one day there's going to be a wonderful reunion of all the faithful. And we need to anticipate that. That's why the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, those who sorrow 
as those who have no hope. We don't sorrow that way. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We grieve. We do sorrow, but we have hope. And so we anticipate that wonderful reunion that one day is going to take place. Let me also suggest tonight that during the first 30 minutes of heaven, we're going to realize our perfected state of existence. Now, there are some who came to this building tonight with a walker. Some may have needed assistance to get to your seats. It might be, and I'm sure it was difficult for some here tonight to get here. It took a great deal of effort physically to come. But in heaven, there's not going to be any durable medical equipment because you won't need it. In heaven, there's not going to be any remembering to take your medicine because there won't be any kinds of sicknesses. There won't be any cemeteries in heaven because there won't be any more death. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. You see, a doctor can go to heaven. An undertaker can go to heaven. But a doctor and an undertaker cannot practice their profession in heaven because there will be no sickness and there will be no more death. As our scripture reading tonight emphasized in <clears throat> Revelation 21 and verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. There'll be no more pain for the former things are passed away. You know, sometimes I get up in the morning and I feel aches and pains that I didn't feel just five or ten years ago. And I wonder, you know, what's it going to be like in 30 years or 20 years if I live that long? You know, we're all growing older. Uh, and some of the funerals that we've been to lately, they have video presentations of their life. And it's astounding to me to see people who are aged, who have gone on, to see them when they're younger, to see them in their 20s or in their teens, to see how vibrant they were, how active they were. I didn't know them at that particular time, but, you know, once they were strong and stalwart like many of us today, but life goes on very quickly. And we age. But in heaven, there will not be any aches and pains, those things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Just imagine what it would be like to never ache, to never hurt, to never get sick, to be able to see perfectly, to have a perfect memory, a strong back, to have energy just like a child. Someone has said that would be heavenly, and that's exactly right. I think you'll understand and realize in the first few minutes of heaven that perfected state of existence. And then I want to suggest tonight as well that during the first 30 minutes of heaven, we're going to rejoice that this will never end. Have you ever been on a trip, maybe on a vacation with your family and Maybe you think to yourself, man, I wish we could just freeze this in time. I, I wish things could just stay like this. It's just perfect. 
Well, if, if when you get to heaven you say that, somebody may kind of look at you like you're funny because that's exactly what's going to happen. It's not going to go away. We're going to be there at a wonderful place and it will never end. Luke 1.33 says, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. These shall go away into everlasting life, Matthew 25 and verse 46. In that very familiar song we sing sometimes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But then I want to close tonight by suggesting that here in this life we labor we work. The Bible describes the church as a kingdom. It's a place where work is to be done. We are laborers in the vineyard of the Lord. Jesus encouraged us to work while it's day. For the night comes when no man can work. In the conclusion of that great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so we work, we sacrifice sometimes, we wonder, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? We get discouraged, we get distraught. We may get to the point where we actually may want to give up and quit sometimes, but we just keep on keeping on because we trust in God's promises. But during the first few minutes of heaven, I believe you're going to see and you're going to be aware of the fruit of your reward. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10 and 42, whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. If I were to ask you tonight what accomplishments you have as a Christian, I think probably most of us could name a few. And yet we need to realize that the true results of our Christian labor, our labor, the true results of the work that we do may never be known by us until we get to heaven. But that's what's wonderful about heaven because when we get there, our fruits, the work that we've done and accomplished will be known. We will see the results. I want to close tonight by <clears throat> illustrating this particular point and how all of us have influence, how all of us never realize the power and the magnitude of what we can do for the Lord. Brother Flavel Nichols, who <clears throat> recently passed from this life at age 99, he was a friend of mine when I was in Walker County. I've told people he is the most spiritually minded man I've ever known, a great man. He is the son of the late Brother Gus Nichols, who some people here are familiar with as well. He wrote this particular article entitled, The Power of One. 
He writes, during the war between the states, a young woman learned the truth and she obeyed the gospel. Her sweetheart, J.H. Hallbrook, was a Confederate soldier. He was captured by the Union Army and he was kept prisoner in Michigan until the war was over. He was given a ticket to Nashville, Tennessee and $2.50 and from there he returned to Centerville and found what was left of his home and family. He found his girlfriend and they were married. His wife studied the Bible with him. She was a Christian and soon he became a Christian. He thought the truth was so good and so simple that he began to teach and baptize many of his friends and neighbors. He began to preach, but he recognized the need for more training. And so he came to the original Morris Hill Bible School in Lauderdale County, Alabama, taught by T.B. Larimore. Upon completing his studies there, instead of going back to Tennessee, they moved further south coming into Walker, Marion, Fayette, and Lamar counties in Alabama. One of his many converts was Charlie Alexander Wheeler. His wife taught him how to read from the Bible. Along with his wife, C.A. Wheeler obeyed the gospel and soon began to preach to others. He started more than 100 congregations, baptized more than 6,000 people, But wait, the story has not ended. Of those 6,000 people, one was my father, the late Gus Nichols. 12,000 were baptized under his preaching and teaching. Among those baptized by Gus Nichols, no one knows nor can know how many begin to preach the glorious gospel of God, but I personally know several I, Flavel Nichols, am one whom he baptized and whom he encouraged to preach the truth. And under my preaching, about 3,000 have been baptized. A few among them preach the gospel also. Only eternity can reveal the total results of that one girl nearly 150 years ago. The results are not all in yet. But this shows that at least 21,000 people have become Christians through this single thread in the fabric of her influence. And so, I hope we can learn from that that who we are and what we do is vitally important. That you make a difference and you make a powerful difference. You know, when Marco Polo was on his deathbed, some who thought about his stories he told of of the Far East were far-fetched and asked him maybe to recant some of those wonderful stories. He said, I just cannot. Because you see, the half has not been told. And I submit to you tonight that an individual could preach on heaven for a thousand years. And yet the half could not be told. Heaven is more than our greatest dream. It's larger than our imagination. And that's why all of us should be encouraged by the words of our Lord in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And so tonight, I ask you the question as we close, is heaven in your future? Are you living your life in such a way so that you can anticipate with confidence in what Jesus did for you that heaven can be yours when this life is over? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you put on the Lord in baptism? Have you demonstrated your faith in God and in Christ by repenting of your sins and acknowledging with your mouth that Jesus is God's son and then to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. Tonight we sing this song of encouragement. If you need to respond to the invitation tonight, we ask that you come now while we stand and sing. <laughs>